Quigley in five, underwater in the yellow lane. Jess Carling of Great Britain. Quigley goes through, the silver to Jess Carling, wonderful silver medal for Great Britain. Welcome to the Honest Athletes podcast with Lauren Quigley and Jazz Carlin. Hello and thank you for tuning in to episode eight of the Honest Athletes podcast. Today we're lucky to be joined by one of Britain's greatest role models within women's sport, Laura Mazzaro. Laura, a now retired professional squash player, had an unbroken run of 11 straight years ranked inside the top 10 in the world, with 2015 being the standout year as she became the number one player in the world. As we've mentioned many times on this podcast before, an athlete's time within sport is never a smooth road. And so with Laura's amazing achievements comes many challenges, which I can't wait to chat with Laura about today. However, I'd just like to say Laura has just released a book called All In, Becoming World Champion, which you can get your hands on right now and definitely should. So if you want to pause this podcast order it and then come straight back that's absolutely fine we'll allow that but if we sat here and talk about Laura's achievements I don't think she'd she'd actually have time to chat if I listed them all so let's get started massive thanks to Laura for coming on today how are you Laura I'm great thanks thanks for having me on um I've seen I've seen a few of the podcasts you've done so it's exciting to be part of it Good. No, it's, I mean, it's super exciting to have you on. We talked about who we should have on next. Your name came up straight away. Obviously, you've just released a book. We've just, we'll talk about it later on, but we always like to start right at the start. So why squash, Laura? I think uh, back in the kind of early 80s or even late 80s, as I was kind of growing up, I think squash was booming. Um, it's never been a sport that's been uh, played in schools and is, you know, obviously it's, it's sm- a small sport, minority sport, but my parents both played. And, you know, I think I always say I feel like it was a good place to kind of lock a kid in a in a all in a in a four walled court you just shut the door and they were in the bar and you just practiced and I think um I think I just started because they played and I was quite good quite young and then I think I got that competitiveness in quite early as well so yeah it it was a bit it was a it is a strange one is like how you pick it up and stuff but I think it was just from from parents playing and, and that boom in the 80s and early 90s that squash had as well I've tried out, well, thanks for coming on as well, Laura. (laughs) Just like saying hi. Um, But I personally, when I was younger, I think parents were getting me to try out loads of different sports. And unfortunately, racket sports for me, I was never gifted. My mum and dad used to play quite a lot of badminton. And I, I did used to enjoy badminton, but I tried tennis and I just wasn't that coordinated. I found that hand-eye coordination with a racket, a ball struggle. Were you quite natural? Did that come quite natural to you? I guess growing up with mum and dad, they could kind of teach you all the tricks. Um, and did that go across with other sports that were with the racket too? Yeah, I think you're right. The, my dad says that the first time I went on court, I volleyed the ball, obviously, so without the bounce, which is a fairly hard skill, a, a fairly hard skill. So he, he, I think, picked upon, I didn't know any better, but he picked upon up the fact that maybe it was it was quite natural, the hand-eye coordination. Um, and we sort of went from there, really. My dad was, you know, just a club player, really. Um, so good but not kind of of any sort of level my mum actually stopped playing when um I think she had me but had played in the past so 
yeah, I think it's a little a little bit natural. Um, and it and it is that whole nurture nature argument, isn't it? And I used to swim as well when I was younger, and it got to the point where those early mornings kicked in, and I was like. I think I prefer squash. <laughs> like credit to you guys for what you, the the amount of training I've trained with swimmers a lot over the years. It's unbelievable, but it was just phenomenal. You know, yeah. I think I think just sort of having that that games part of it as well was a really big thing for me. Like playing the game and figuring it out was a big thing, um, which I really enjoyed young as well. There's so many questions that I can't wait to ask because obviously having a squash player on is like so different to anyone we've ever talked to. So you said you did a bit of swimming and stuff like that. Um, I presume you, you did most of the sports or, you know, tried lots of different things. And obviously squash was the one for you, evidently so. You said, you've mentioned the competitive side. Did you always want to, I want to be world number one? Or was it like a progression? Like, I really enjoy this. I'm just going to keep training, training, training. And then eventually you were just like, oh, I'm really good at this. You know, maybe <laughs> let's let's keep going and see where we get sort of thing. Yeah, probably really similar to what you've just said, except probably just the I'm really good at this and we'll keep going. But I, I guess good and good enough to keep going and was was fairly good for my age. I was I was number one in England for most of my junior career, which is obviously good, isn't it, I guess? But on a world level, it's um and pro level is completely different. So I went to I went to college, did A levels and sort of applied to go to university and was would I'd started out trying to kind of test the water with a few pro events. So you'd travel within Europe maybe and just try and, and you used to have this junior ranking system that towards under 19 level, you could sort of transfer onto the senior rankings without basically coming in at the bottom. And I sort of came in at maybe 70, 80 in the world. And then within, you know, a few tournaments was kind of going up quite quickly. So I decided to de defer my place to uni for a year got a job at David Lloyd in Chorley behind reception and kind of funded myself and thought, well, I'll just give it a year and see how I go. And I think kind of broke top 50, top 40 within the first year. Um, and then never really looked back after that. So it was sort of just that progression enough to keep you, to keep, the carrot was always just in front of you. And it, and it's not easy, as you said in your intro, it's there's a lot of ups, a lot of downs and it, the, the struggle is real <laughs> and it's day in day out kind of like you feel like you're achieving and then you go back two steps don't you and then you go forward and I was a bit of a late peaker in that respect but always had enough of that carrot dangling in front of me to be able to just keep me going and keep me thinking I want a bit more I want a bit more so that was really good. And what age were you when you I guess mainly focused just on squash and I guess that as we said that kind of progression through you just start to get when was that age where you thought oh this could actually be something that I can do for a living for a career um and start to challenge for those those world titles I guess I mean in terms of like committing to it as a career and a profession that was literally when I deferred the uni place but in terms of kind of you know i I know like with my husband and stuff, we talk a lot about kids like an early specialization and how how young they pick a sport and just go with it. But I, I think I played most sports and a lot of sports right up until leaving school. So that was probably 16. And then it was only when I went to college and they tried, I was all up for 
for going on the hockey team that my coach kind of had a word and was like, do you really want to get a hockey ball in your face and be out or, you know, in your hand or something like that? So it was right up, right up till 16 at the end of high school, I played netball rounders, I, you know, ran, I was, I was at a school that wasn't hugely sporty. So I was always at the top end of, of that, which again is another kind of, you're on all the teams and, and everything. And I do think that, you know, when you see these kids who specialize early, it's really rare, isn't it, for them? It's rare. It, they use those examples of early specialization for people who are amazing, who have specialized and then go on to have huge success. But I, I do think even now as a coach, trying to trying to coach young kids, if they've just thrown a ball or hit a hockey ball with a stick or you know, anything, then the positive transfer of that over into your own sport and your own your own skills and skill development is, is unbelievable. So I think it was huge, actually, for me to do a lot of sport until I was 16. Yeah, and we, we always talk about how we were really lucky where our parents just sort of said, just try everything, do everything, put us into everything. You used to do the sports camps everywhere and just just get my my foot in every single sport I could just to to see what I enjoyed, what I was good at, you know, and all those sorts of things. So yeah. you've mentioned just quickly go away from from your career. You've obviously mentioned your coaching. Is that something that you always saw yourself doing or since you've obviously recent recently retired that you've thought oh I'd like to to get involved that way and still be involved in the sport yeah I think um from about 2017 I started to get a few opportunities so I think linking in with my own squash career I think quite not naturally obviously there was a natural talent there but not hugely talented and skillful with the racket it was a lot of hard work dedication a lot of physical dedication and bring a lot of physicality to the court and so I think that was one of the reasons I had su- such a long career retiring at kind of um 35 in, into my 30 35th year which is a long career for a squash player um I think that 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 also meant that kind of from about 33, I was sort of starting to think how, how much longer have I got? Like, do I want to carry on? Do I look to do something while I'm still playing? The positive of being such a physical squash player was that the drop-off wasn't very severe. It happened quite slowly. So it was my speed that I felt I started to drop off on. And that that was sort of like, it just started to open up gaps on the court and, and it became really hard. So in answer to your question, I, I sort of started I thinking about late 2017, where I was um, getting involved a little bit with the England juniors. And I'd had so much support from England squash and the senior side of that when I was a junior that I think that that's, that's huge. And then when I get to be at the top of the game, I want to give back to the juniors. And I hope that me giving back then means if any of them make it to the top, that they, they will give back. So I started to get involved with England squash, joined in on a few junior squads, the higher end junior squads, where I would literally just go on and and play them and and train with them. And so they could feel the level of what it was like to be at the top of the women's game. Did a couple of trips away with the juniors as well and kind of tried to inspire the fact that I was there as kind of a coach and started mentoring a couple of the, the younger girls and was giving back for perhaps maybe two, two and a bit years before I properly retired. In hindsight, I don't know if there was a little bit of me that was sort of really thinking about retiring because I don't, I wouldn't have even been able to contemplate doing that in kind of 
2014, 15, 16, really. And then all of a sudden I felt ready for that. So when it started going well and I was mentoring them and I felt like I could have an impact on court, teaching them some of the stuff that had really worked with me, then I think the coaching side really opened up as a possibility to go into post-career. I think that's one thing is as athletes, you go through such a journey, highs, lows, and being able to actually give back. I find it so rewarding. I know Lauren does too. So I bet you feel like exactly the same with that. But from an outsider, watching squash it looks like one of the most relentless like people come out and they're dripping they look like they've gone through a shower with fully clothed <laughs> it just looks so tough to watch from like the outside um what did like your typical training week like look like obviously from a swim perspective we know how swimmers train we used to do a lot of early mornings and tough training but from a squash side i guess how many times you on the court how many times you in the gym what did your typical training week look like yeah, I, that's the one thing I get as a squash player. You say to someone, oh, I'm a professional squash player, and they just, you speak to any squash player, they go, oh, my God, you must be so fit. And you're like, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but I think it's sort of the intensity, isn't it? The intensity of the game. And I don't, I think the pros like in any sport can make it look quite easy, but it's when you get on the court and you're chasing that little black ball around and it's really hard. Um, I think it, the game's moved on a lot and that's probably like throughout my career it's been a huge change the tin height dropped which meant it the court effectively got lengthened so you had to change the way you moved into the front of the court the scoring system changed um midway through my career as well to try and speed up the game and make it kind of less less boring less long rallies more attacking so again that was more dynamic and changing training but it was uh, training wise probably two strength sessions a week um tried to kind of get at least at least one kind of non-impact session in where I was on the bike kind of going for it and obviously as you you guys know it de totally depends on the time of the season um kind of a very I was a very technical player so always tweaking and working on my technique and trying to improve it from that way so I'd always try and get and see my coach once a week and I worked a lot on those changes with my husband and match practice and and then a heck of a lot of ghosting as well like you know movement patterns without the ball and swinging and practicing and moving around the court which is pretty unique I think to to squash that sort of shadowing of you know I guess boxing as well a little bit they shadow box where you're just moving around the court without the ball swinging working on movement patterns things like that um and then, and then, as you know, it's just that dedication even away from the court, isn't it? The the diet and the stretching and tried to have one-to-one -one yoga towards the end of my career, which I felt really helped with injury prevention and everything like that. So I started working with, with Mark Campbell at the English Institute of Sport in Sheffield, actually, from about 20, 2015. Um and he was unbelievable and he was GB boxing coach. You know, he worked a bit with, with other sports and swimmers as well. And he would, he would say to me, like swimmers are, are, are relentless. Like there's no one who puts in more hours than swimmers do. Like it's, it's brutal, but he was always like with the squash players, there's also not, there's not many sports he's ever dealt with where it's that constant, it's the intensity all the time, day in, day out. And the, the key with a squash player is trying not to get them to work in that red zone all the time um because that's where we sort of want to live <laughs> so in in swimming we we talk about 
oh, that's a fast pool or that's a slow pool. And it doesn't really make too much sense because it's literally a box with water in it. But it is, it's a fast pool or it's a slow pool. Is there such thing in squash like, oh, this is a bouncy court? Oh, this is a fast court. And how does how do you explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it sort of depends on the conditions where you're at. I mean, I played a tournament in Macau one year and that one just sticks out where they put a glass court in the square in the town in the town centre. And I literally, I mean, Danny was with me. We walked out of the hotel to go to play the semi-final, which was the first match on the glass court. And I felt like I walked into a brick wall of, well, it wasn't a brick wall, obviously, but I felt like I walked into a wall of humidity. I walked out of this beautifully air conditioned that you don't even realize is air conditioned because it's so hot outside. It's just a nice temperature and you walk out and you just get, you know, when you feel like you stood behind a bus and the exhaust is going at you. You'll know from getting off in in Lanzarote, you're like, whoa. Um, And it was just that. And I just looked at Danny and went, how how am I going to play in this? I mean, it's just when that heat and it zaps you and it kind of gets rid of all of your energy and it can, can make you quite mentally and physically flat. Um, so you've obviously got the, the 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 court situation in terms of we're supposed to be an indoor sport, but we'll put a court up in the ta- in the centre of Macau. Um, same in we're played in San Francisco, so you've got same same situation glass court right kind of by the Bay Bridge in San Francisco on the waterfront. September freezing cold, you're you're sort of like literally warming up in four layers, and the, and the ball is like heavy. And it's like a stone and your shoulders sore the next day because you've got to hit it so hard to get it to the back of the court. So you've got those conditions to deal with. And then you've actually just got the, the court conditions as well, like different glass courts, some are fast, some are slow, adapting to them. But I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but you know, we get a practice on on the court for two or three days before and the morning of our match. And you sort of trying to find your range really a bit different to you guys because you just want it to be fast to swim fast but we're trying to find the range trying to find how hard to hit the ball like how high on the front wall um get the feel of the court really so it changes a lot I love watching like the glass like boxes what is that what you call them like a glass court glass court yeah I absolutely love watching it. I think like as a sports fan, I just love watching all sports. But when you get to see like all the angles and where you can actually just place it anywhere in the world, that's pretty special. Like it's not like they put, I mean, they've put temporary pools in everywhere, but obviously you need a lot of water. So it's not like you can be in San Francisco with amazing views. That must be very cool, very cool to watch. And as you said, squash is such a technical sport and being able to get to know every single court is so interesting. Um, to hear about but taking it back I guess you said you deferred a year from university when was it when did you get to that age where you started to think oh I'm breaking into that kind of world top 10 um when did that kind of coin drop that like oh I can start really challenging there yeah I think so it was always that progression um I got I got a little bit stuck at about 20 in the world um and that was a tough time and I and I left my coach at the time around there because I sort of felt like oh you know is this actually, not only am I going to break top 20, but you know, how can I, I want to get to the very top. So there's tough, those tough situations and decisions. And at the time, they're the toughest of tough decisions, aren't they? You feel like there's nothing more important in the world than do I go? Do I stay? What happens if I go? What happens if I stay? You just don't know what the future holds, do you? It's so tough. And the same as you go up the rankings, I got stuck just outside the top 10 as well. Um, 
and it was and it was really tough and then with the the funny thing I talk a lot about it in the book as well is because I was alongside Nicole David who was nine straight years at world number one and so trying to deal with you know kind of your own progression and she's three months older than me so we came through juniors together which which is good and bad because I honestly, I honestly believe that I, that she pushed the game to a higher level and she made us all chase after it. She took the game physically to another level. And if you weren't in physical shape to be, to you had no chance if you weren't even nearer physically. So it was, it was good and bad. So you were always sort of comparing yourself to these people. And there's another couple of English girls who were slightly ahead of, I was ahead of them in juniors and then they sort of came through and kind of overtook me and you're just dealing with all of that all the time it's irrelevant isn't it who's at the rankings and who's above you but it's not it's like you know you're looking over your shoulder a bit and um I think just just never really had my I've had my eye set on that one spot because Nicole was there and for for a lot of years you were fighting to kind of win the odd title she literally lost once or twice a year for the majority of my early 20 early to mid 20s and then um, I managed to get my first win over her, and that was a big breakthrough. I was nine nil down um, in the head-to-heads before I got my first win. <laughs> and then I started to kind of get into her a little bit, and you know, by that I mean maybe beat her twice a season, which is tough as well. So you never really thought to get to world number one, you need to do it consistently week in, week out. And I don't think I ever really believed that. I would get to the, be the world number one because of that. My best hope was sort of putting it together for a week and winning a, a big title. Um, so, yeah, in, in answer to your question, I don't think I ever did kind of fully believe that I would get to the top. It was sort of just, and it was such a slow process that it was kind of small incremental changes. And then you beat her a little bit more. And then I won the British Open in 2013 and I beat her in the final completely unexpectedly, you know, when you, no one's even really considered that you're probably going to win the final. And then that was a big turning point because it gave me a lot of belief going forward after that. It's definitely those moments in sport where you've been working some, for something for so long and then you get that bit of confidence and it's literally all you need. Laura Massaro, the squash player, had a tough exterior. <laughs> It was like, we've talked about it before, Jazz and I on the podcast of Poker Face and sort of like for us in racing, Poker Face was obviously your face in the water. So no one sees what you look like when you're swimming. But when you finished, you sort of, you touch the wall and you look confident. And even though inside you're like <gasps> dying at the wall, you just want everyone to think that was easy. You know, heat swim, I've got loads in the tank. <laughs> and your persona obviously was like Laura Massaro hard as nails no problem you know a force to be reckoned with obviously but this face of like I've got this you know confidence first of all did you know that that was your reputation and second of all Laura Massaro inside the squash player how was she feeling in these moments how did you deal with the nerves and all that sort of stuff yes firstly I I knew that was what my reputation was and it's funny, isn't it? Because you have to do something to gain that reputation. So I was obviously behaving in a certain way that gave me that reputation. And then I got given the nickname 
on tour um, as Ice Queen, which I thought was quite fitting. Although I was quite, I was, they were, they were toying around with Medusa for a bit. And I quite fancy, I quite liked that because I did have a look that could kill on court. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the, the, the comment I get most of the time is when I meet someone kind of away from court or particularly now I'm retired is more like, I, di I didn't realize you were as nice as you are or as smiley as you are. And I'm like, yeah, well, there's a, yeah, I didn't really want you to, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I think that, so there must have been something going on that sort of gave me that nickname, that sort of gave me that reputation. But it all happened without me sort of realizing it. I was quite tough and I was quite serious. And I'm quite serious. I, you know, I was there to do a job. Like I said, I wasn't the most talented. I sort of needed the other edges mentally and physically to sort of, you know, whereas other players can just finish the racket with, uh, finish the rally with racket skills. I didn't really have that. So I, the mentality I feel would win me a couple of points a game and um, particularly say it like eight all or nine all when you're pushing through towards 11 to get there they think oh she always comes through at nine all and wins the game and I don't but they think I do so then you're sort of halfway there aren't you and then once I realized that people were talking about me with those sort of that sort of language and that's what people think I definitely think I started to then play up to that more not in sort of like a, a games, a, you know, and I wasn't playing up to it, but I sort of accepted it. And, I, and almost they made me, they gave me that personality before I even realized I had it myself. And then it was something that I could almost just become comfortable with. And I was really, really lucky. I was going to say really lucky because I traveled with Danny, my husband, a lot, um, particularly from about 2014 to the end of my career. But it isn't luck, is it? Because it cost a lot of money and it was like actually a decision to take him with me. And so that meant I could almost separate myself even more from the other girls. So because squash is such a small sport, if you're there on your own traveling, you've got to figure out who you're going for dinner with. You're going to sit in your room all day unless you go for a coffee. Who you are going to sit and watch some of the other matches with? It all becomes like very clicky and with the other girls. And then you've got to go on there and perform you know, against them and be quite aggressive. And I didn't feel like I could do that with the personality that I was, that I was and how I wanted to be on court and then go and just have a coffee with them. So I think that that was a really big move, kind of being able to separate myself from the other women and have the support of Danny there and, and kind of literally go into this ice queen persona and put this face on that just said, don't come near me. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> oh, it's so funny because we are all seen. And as we said, like some people might see, oh, ice queen. But you just sometimes you don't even realize like how people see you. Um, but I think from like a swimming perspective, bringing it back to swimming, we could finish races, and apart from being in the cool room with everyone before, which can be quite an intense environment, you're there 15 minutes before your finals and you're with everyone you're about to race against. Some, some are quite relaxed. Then you see other finals where it looks like the men could kill each other at times. Mm -hmm. um, but once you're in the water, I guess, head down, you can see everyone, but you can't really see, how, well, you can't see their emotions, their expressions when their face is in the water. Um, but then I guess as soon as you've touched the wall and your result, good or bad, most of the time the good people are showing it and bad, you sometimes go off and you can just go in the changing rooms and sit by yourself and I guess have a bit of a moment to yourself. Whereas with squash, it's so different because you could have a disappointing run, you could have a disappointing point. And I guess, how do you channel 
um, your emotions and your feelings when you're like in such a tight game. Um, sometimes you do see some people seem to let out some kind of anger and aggression and emotion. And I can totally feel it because if you're going through that and it's really tight, how did you channel your emotions going through tough games and what got you through those tough games? I would say that a lot, a lot of that came from literally that being given that ice queen persona kind of nickname was me starting to almost think actually like that I could live up to that. So I was on the court and I would, I would have this icy exterior that didn't really show a lot of emotion. And I used to be, I'd probably show more emotion in training than I would in matches because it got down to the point where I just I just used to watch other people play and I just used to think about my own game and think anything that I give away to my opponent they're going to lap up because that's what I did so if someone shows emotion or frustration or anger or, or determination or whatever that that kind of I, I fed off that a little bit and I could run with it so I was all of, always about whether I was tired whether I was not you know not tired feeling fresh whether I was feeling confident whether I was not there was always I tried to just be the same all the time and actually it's it, it although that it's not what you see on the surface and a lot of what I was going through was extreme nerves off the court and extreme doubts and whether or not I could step on the court and actually win and get kind of get over the line and I worried a lot before I went on court whether I was going to win or whether you know whether I was going to lose and then trying to stay performance focused you know winning losing doesn't matter just focus on what you're trying to do on the game plan and and then there were I definitely think and I don't know if you guys can feel this but there's some days you just sort of had like this steely determination within you where it was just like no I'm not having it and sometimes for me that could kick in at kind of you know maybe seven five down eight five down seven all and you depending on your opponent and who you're playing and I'll just go no I'm not having it like oh like if it was a little Laura inside just be stamping a foot having a paddy but no one saw it and I'd go no I'm not having it and I just dug in put the ball on the wall put the ball in the back make it really difficult like basically close up the shop and protect my own movement and, and make it really hard for them and that's probably where over the years that that nickname and that kind of that being mentally strong came from because at times where a lot of people can go weak and kind of panic, there seems sometimes seems to be, I don't want to say a calmness because it never felt calming, but it felt almost like a determination and a clarity came over that was like, you're either going to do this and be able to get through it, or you're going to carry on the way you're going and you're going to lose. And there was so much in me that was like wanting to win and fear of losing more than anything. Don't again, like with how you guys feel, you know, there's always those people who, a fear of fear of failure and then towards winning isn't there and for me it was just always losing hurt so much more than the joy of the win um and so I was always trying to just stop not lose <laughs> that's uh it, it's amazing what gets people going really and the fear of failure is one of those massive things within sport the the power of sport and being around other athletes is massive. And I know you've mentioned Danny a couple of times already, and obviously I'd love to touch on Danny because uh, I worked with Danny through my career and he helped me through some really dark times. So, you know, love Danny, so much respect to him. And we always used to talk about you, Laura. I think being in different sports, he knew that there's no way Lauren's any good at squash, so we're all good. Um, but obviously I used to hear a lot about you and... Uh, we actually 
when, well, we obviously were both at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, same kit. And I remember seeing you walk through the village and I was like, oh, that's Laura, you know, wow. And saw you got your silver medals and you won't know this, but for me, that was inspiration then. So even though it's a different sport, I was like, well, I want to get mine. You know, Laura's just done amazing. And whether you were happy with that or not, for someone else like me, it was inspiration. And yeah. so it's amazing to be around other athletes and, and just, get inspiration from wherever you can for you who was there anyone in particular that was your inspiration through sport or was it your parents or having Danny around what in these individual sports that everyone calls them it's a team sport who was your team who was your inspiration I think I, I think I used to get a lot of inspiration through watching um the men um particularly like my coach David Pearson also coached Nick Matthew who was three times world champion and world number one and I think because because we were taught a similar way and we were people used to say towards the end like I was the female version of Nick probably because I just I, I wanted we were similar we were coached the same way we were technically looked the same we we're both quite hard-nosed apparently um, so I sort of looked up to him a lot and, you know, kind of wanted to achieve what he'd achieved. And he was obviously English and, and all of that. And, and that was definitely a big one. I get, I get a lot of inspiration as well from really strong women, sports, sports women. Um, and the big thing that I wanted to talk about, and one of the reasons for doing the book, which I, I know we'll come on to, but was about reading so many inspirational stories throughout my career and then literally winning me matches and tournaments that I wanted to sort of think, oh, if I could put some of my stories down, maybe it might inspire and help other people. So even though I never met or haven't met someone like Chrissy Wellington, um, her book literally won me the the KL Open because I wrote this story in there that I talk about in the book about her saying in, in the book and how, how hard they train was at, at, she was doing a race and she literally couldn't feel her legs anymore. Like her legs had gone numb and she was trying to run. And I remember being mid-match against Nicole in Malaysia at home, was in a mall again, caught up in a mall, hot, there's loads of noise going on, playing Nicole. Um, and I just remember thinking, I'm so tired. I, and you always had to have a word before you went on with Nicole, like how, how before you went on, it was like, how hard am I willing to dig here? Because there's going to be an L, there's going to come a time where you want to stop. You want to throw in a boast and be like, this rally's ending. It's either ending with a winner or it's ending with an error sort of thing, rather than just putting the ball back down the wall and waiting for the right opportunity opportunity and that time came and I wanted to quit and not quit but you know what I mean wanted to just have a rest and get out of the situation and um I just remember thinking I can still feel my legs I've got more in me I've got I can go keep going because you know that's how far the mentality of like you know when you push yourself that far if you can push yourself so hard that you can't feel your legs anymore then if I can still feel my legs I've got more and it gave me confidence to know that that I don't it's crazy isn't it because I've, I've probably never been in a situation where I can't feel my legs <laughs> that's on, but just just before Jazz speaks that's giving me goosebumps Laura just from you getting someone else's story but that's yeah. amazing and I'm sure you'll definitely do that with the book yeah exactly and that's so if anyone hasn't if anyone wants a really inspirational book for me it was Chrissy Wellington there's loads and at the back of my book 
I list every sports book I've ever read and there's over a hundred um, and they're just either sports autobiographies or, or books that have helped me, things like The Inner Game of Tennis, Winning Ugly. Some of them are not always squash related, but things that have helped me from a mental perspective. Here's one, Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> Look how thin it is. It's just, you know, it's a silly story that kind of just helps you get life in perspective. And that's, that's, that's where a lot of my inspiration, I think, came from. I think as well, as Lauren said, it's, it's just so great to hear. And I think the world needs more women to speak up, share their stories, because hopefully you just never know what girl could be reading or could be listening to these podcasts, you know? And I think it's just so, so powerful that you can actually have such an impact. And as you say, and by you reading however many books and stories and things that how much it can actually impact your life. And well, that's one of the reasons we started the podcast was just yeah. to try and make a difference and to try and really be able to support people, share our own experiences. And hopefully we've had so many messages about the people that can relate. And I know a lot of people will be so inspired just by listening to you and obviously reading your book too, which we will come on to. But if we talk about Laura, so what would you say were your biggest strengths as a player um, and as a person too? You have just said, I guess, having those shots where you thought, oh, I just want to give up, legs are hurting, but you don't. So, so obviously we can see you didn't like to give up very easily. So I'd like to think that's one of your strengths. What other strengths do you think were you as a player and as a person? Yeah, I, I, um, so I always say, um, kind of wasn't the most talented of squash players, which is a bit harsh because I think if you've not got talent and you're not going to get to the top, but when you see some of the girls that are on tour, the Egyptian girls who are just, you know, kind of coming through, there's so many of them. They're so talented with the racket and the shots that they seemingly can play any shot from anywhere in the court. Um, I think that although there was obviously an element of talent and that timing and that hand-eye coordination from the start, I would actually say, and I don't think it's kind of talked about as a talent as such as much as it should be, but I would say that one of my biggest talents and strengths was just dedication and commitment. And you talk to a lot of the players now and they think they're training hard and they think that they're dedicated. And I don't, you know, there's, they're under, I'm sure I feel a bit harsh saying it. They, they actually think that they are. But then when I look at what I did and that commitment, Sometimes it's sort of like, yeah, put in a couple of weeks and then they might go missing for a weekend or, you know, sometimes a week or a month or whatever, or it just drops off. But for me, it was um, I would literally get my training program written out on kind of like a Monday morning and it was just followed to the letter every single day. And if I was feeling tired or I was feeling run down or was anything like that, I just pick up the phone and there was a huge amount of honesty with everything that I did, particularly in the later stages of my career. So from kind of like 26 onwards, where I matured a little bit, I'm not saying I was like this from the very beginning, but if I had to say why my successes came a little bit late, that, that would be why. And I would just ring up my trainer and say, I'm feeling pretty heavy today, feeling a bit run down, shattered. It's the end of the week. I've got this session coming up. Danny was always quite protective in that way. I think you should rest, I think you, should, you might get ill or, you know, whatever. So I'd pick up the phone and he'd just simply go, yeah, rest. Because it was always for me, like making sure, you know, he always knew that I would follow it to the letter. So it was like, if, if I'm saying I'm tired and I'm, you know, maybe a bit on the verge of illness or injury, then just rest. And then other times I'd pick up the phone at a different time of the season and he'd go, no, no, you're supposed to be tired, get through it. 
And that, that just was trusting completely in me and my honesty, having the trust in my team that I would pick up the phone and be able to ask that question and know, know what I was going to get, I would just do. And so I think that that, that me as a person and as an athlete, it was just a hundred percent dedication from, from every, every side of it, which is now on the coaching side, perhaps a bit of a bigger deal than I kind of realized when I was in it because it was just that was just how I was so the diet and the the training and the sleep and the psychology and the yoga and the stretching and the technical work and the extra just the extra bits at all the time was probably like what what I was probably what I'm probably most proud of and who I who I who I was as an athlete it's really interesting you say that, like you've stepped out as a coach now and you can see the athletes that think they're doing it all. And compared to what you do, you're like, oh, no, you're not, you know, sort of thing. It's like, you're not. It's just how it is. And that's a game where the mentoring and all that sort of good stuff comes in. I would love to ask about the relationship with Danny then, because I've, well, there's a swimmer, Hannah Miley, who I've spoke to before and her dad was her coach. And although obviously Danny's not your dad, your husband, he is a sports psychologist. He's also a squash coach. How do you manage that relationship of this is when I'm the coach? This is, I, I mean, I wanted to ask, did he help you with psychology a lot? And how is that? Right. I'm Danny now the husband rather than Danny the coach, rather than Danny the, you know, sports psychologist. What was that like? I think just going back to the last answer, um, I, I, I literally kind of probably more, I don't know if this is the case and whether it's possible for everybody. I don't want to say this is the only way to do it because I don't think it's possible for everybody, but I literally was living my squash and I'm lucky that Danny is, a, he loves his squash as well. And, um, and he was like just with it, with me every day as well. He was just on it and wanted, you know, whether I was off training somewhere else, he was, it was all about trying to help me be the best that I could be. So I guess, I guess it, it didn't really ever, it didn't really end. Like you all know, we, we used to go on holidays to Club La Santa <laughs> um, and, and obviously have breaks as well in summer and stuff, but we would just, uh, you can't do that if you, if you're waiting for the work day to end and it's start and, and don't get me wrong. There were some wobbles where we'd go out for dinner on a Saturday night and I'd be like having my one really like nice meal of the week where I could just eat what I want. And you know, we'd be talking squash and I'd get a bit of a mood on and be like, why Saturday night, can't we talk about something else? And, and Danny would just be like, but it's just, it's what we do. And it, we just, you know, and it wasn't that I didn't want to talk about squash. I think that's what I realized in the end. It was more worried that did we have more than squash? And he, and he always was great with that. He'd just go, well, when the squash ends, we'll have other stuff to talk about. And, and I wasn't sure I probably ever really believed that. I was like, what's going to happen when we retire as like a married couple? We obviously get on great. I'm a pro athlete. He's like supporting me wherever it was. And that worked for probably 95% of the time. But that 5% where I was, have we got, is is there something else? Um, and that, and that's just, it's just sort of, it's just sort of flowed through really. I mean, I guess I always knew we did, of course. And now it's, now we actually spend a lot of time talking about coaching and athletes and learning and teaching and he's you know teachers as well and he obviously is like really good on the psychology side so there was a lot of input from from there and and, and he's just really calm and got his head 
screwed on and just you know kind of kept me on the straight and narrow and then from um from a psychological perspective like certainly early on with a little bit more of the basic stuff um you know, like SWOT analysis, like introducing me to the Enneagram, um, neuro-linguistic programming. We both did a course on that and he went on and did more and did, did all that. And then there becomes a point where he was, you know, at the end of the day, he is my husband and there's only so much you can take <laughs> and there's only so much you'll be told as well. So we, d- I did sort of work with other people and again that open and honesty to kind of be a you, you guys all know like the one when you're thinking to yourself I don't want to talk about that I just want to brush it under the carpet that's the one time you need to go and talk to somebody make yourself do it so there became other people who were like a step removed who could see the situation maybe didn't know squash quite as clearly and um that really helped but I think because he was just there all the time and he understood squash was always just settling me down and making me feel like that there's more to life than squash and so that 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 really helped as well yeah I guess it's also kind of finding your identity away from the squash player away from the athlete as well but I guess that relationship you've got to have ultimate trust and have that and to have such a special relationship that could support you along the way and be a part of it it's going to be memories that you're both going to have um, for years and years and obviously moving forward together it's um special that you've been able to go through all of that together and I guess sometimes seeing you probably at some of your lowest moments but turning into I guess were there any times in squash where you thought I can't do this anymore I'm done with it whether it was from a younger age um it was a couple of times in my career but were there any around about my 30th um where you know you're 30 aren't you it's quite like it is it sort of coming to an end is is that sort of all I've got and I had a bit of a bad run and kind of wasn't really enjoying it and actually Danny was kind of encouraging me to just sort of like take a break sort of uses the kind of analogy of like if you were a horse race they'd put you in the field and just let you sort of graze in the field for a while and just get your energy back up and restore all that kind of you know that hunger and get the get it back in your eyes and and get back on but for I wasn't having any of it at the time and I had a pretty bad loss in the final of the British Nationals and and he and we we were supposed to go to Chicago a couple of weeks a week after maybe and Danny just said I think you should pull out you need a rest you can you can I don't know if you guys have ever been through this it's almost like you there's a fog in front of you and you can't I thought I wasn't fit enough because I was getting tired. I couldn't concentrate. I didn't feel like I could really think about where I was putting the ball or any sort of tactical plans. And I just thought I need to train harder. I need to get better. I need to do more dedicated. Like I, that was always my default. And he was saying that you training hard. This is a tiredness and a fatigue thing. And so he canceled his flight to come to Chicago and was like, well, if you go, I'm not coming. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm I'm still going to go because I was just relentlessly like, no, I'm better than this and I've got more in me. And then obviously Chicago Chicago was a complete nightmare. I, lo- I scraped through the first round and lost to, you know, someone 20, 20 in the world or something in the last 16 and um, flew, just basically flew home. And I think from that point, I'd... I'd no, no one knew, but at the time I was like, I'm done. Um, my rackets are away and they're not coming out again. And we went to, we went away to a, on holiday to Dubai and 
just had a week and I don't know, like slowly but surely this fog started to lift and I cried a lot, like all the time. And anytime I think about it, I just cry in and anytime I thought about it and then slowly the tears sort of subsided and we were having a few cocktails and dinner and I was like, maybe I should just retire. It's not as bad as it seems. And, and then this fog lifted and there's just literally one day, Danny was, we were just talking about like this potential retirement and he was like, what, if you carry on playing, what do you actually want? And I just went, I just want to, I just want to win more titles. And from then he was like, right, write it down. And I wrote down this sheet of paper about if I was going to carry on playing what I'd want. And, and from that day, I sort of never looked back. And so I guess that, that, you know, it was a real wobble at the time and it, there was genuine kind of like the rackets were away. And as far as I was concerned, even though no one else knew I was done, but um, then that fog lifted and that desire came back and the hunger. And I had a few new goals that I set and then I, and then it all sort of made a bit more sense and I was back. (laughs) Um, So I, I know I probably made that sound like it didn't, it wasn't that hard, but you guys all know like those couple of weeks that I just thought I'm done were just brutal and the amount of tears and anxiety and everything like that was really, really tough. And I think from you just speaking there, again, different sports, but I can 100% relate to that. And there's so many things that people listening will as well. It doesn't really matter what level you get to. Everyone experiences, you know, the same emotions that sport brings. And so, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And thanks for opening up about that because it's not, it's never easy really. And I always find a lot of the time when I speak to people about their downtimes in sport, people almost don't remember them or purposely subconsciously forget what happened at that time and how bad it truly was, but it's never easy. It's really not, especially something that obviously you've dedicated your life to, but let's flip that. Let's go positive before we, touch on the book because I'm really excited to listen about the book your favorite moment in squash or your proudest moment because I know sometimes when someone says oh your best moment it can be something that when you were 12 and it was like you won something and everyone's like what do you mean what about that title or that so I don't know your your sort of proudest moment in sport for you well, I mean, just linking in from like that that last question to this one and something that will probably really resonate with you guys and also with sort of any athletes that are listening, that one thing Danny said, has said to me over the years about winning the world championships, which I think really is probably my proudest moment because it does what it says on the tin. Like a British Open for us is huge because it's like the Wimbledon. It's been going for the longest amount of time. It's the most prestigious. So obviously for a Brit, it's, you know, the British Open. Um, But the world championships does what it says on the tin. It's just world champion. And you know, if someone's a world champion, they're a world champion, whereas a British Open, things like that, they're a bit different. Um, and Danny, Danny sort of says, and I think this is what's really kind of resonated with me and become so true that when I won that world championships and all the struggles and everything that you've gone through and all the sacrifices, when you win something in that moment, it makes your past kind of worth it. Um, everything that you've ever sacrificed becomes worth it. And so that's where, although they always say as athletes, like you've got to stay in the present moment, all you can do is deal with the rally that you're dealing with now or the race or whatever. Um, for me, it was it's always really difficult because if I, 
Because if you've lost in three world championship finals, whether you concentrate on the next rally or not, that experience and everything that went through those, that heartache and everything, it's, it's carried with you into that moment. And so when you win in a moment, everything that you've ever been through, whether it's the successes and the struggles all become, it, it, it becomes worth it to you. And you then carry that forward. So Danny said, when I was, you know, serving for the match in the world champs, just let, he said, they just said to himself, just let her win this rally. And I don't care if she never wins anything ever again, because it was sort of like, how can you ever recover from that kind of having a match ball in a world championships and then losing it and everything that that then means for your past and I, and I, and it really it really resonated with me and also that kind of line that people always say about just being the present moment but when you live in and it, it when you live in with like it makes everything in the future different because you're always going to as a world champion you're always going to approach everything in the future very differently knowing you've got that in the bag and then you've all and then all those pain heartache and sacrifices all become worth it all of a sudden but if you've never, if you never win that, or you've lost a few times in a row, then you're still dealing with those past, and your future looks very different as well. Um, and so, I guess my, the point I'm making is, as an as an athlete, is is although that present moment line and staying in the present moment, all, all you can deal with it. There is there is something to be said to kind of accepting that you are bringing your past and also taking what will be your future into that present moment. And that and and the proudest moment was probably winning that world championships and realizing that all of the pain and the sacrifice then became worth it and my future changed because of it. Because from that point, I wanted to win titles and I, I really I was really kind of hungry to, but I didn't need to anymore. And that desperation is like very different for an athlete and I can't tell anyone how to go and win a world championships or how to go and win, become a world number one to make that past and present now worth it. But if you can somehow get there, um, that's sort of how, how it felt and why it's the proudest moment. But it's also worth that little bit of understanding of that. It's okay to just not always be in the present moment. It's a bit bigger than that. There are so many different things and I guess from the crossovers from sports from our side from like the swimming side of it but also hearing it from the squash side and it's the same having those races and confidence in you um definitely helps you when you come to those competitions but then at times if you've got those kind of ghosts of the past thinking I had that missing out on London Olympics and it came back it does come back to haunt you as well so I think it is as you said kind of like accepting that's that is my past, either being able to use it or thinking, no, this is my time now. Um, but I'd love to quickly touch on, I guess, before we talk about the book, um, coming out of like coming out of the sport, retiring, um, a lot of lifestyle changes um, for myself, a lot of body changes, um, lifestyle, everything about it can be very different to what is your traditional normal athlete lifestyle. How did you manage with the switch from having such a successful squash career to then, I guess, stepping away from the sport? Did you struggle, I guess, getting used to a different lifestyle? Um, I haven't, I haven't felt it too badly. I mean, I actually, I don't know if lockdowns actually helped me a little bit, although it was very strange. I've gone from traveling kind of abroad and um, playing you know 10 12 tournaments a year all over the globe to lockdown and there's no choice there everybody was also going through it as well um 
So I probably had probably had maybe like eight or nine months where I was kind of off enjoying all the things that I hadn't really been able to enjoy. Uh, we always have a tournament um, where they put a court in Grand Central Station early January, and that's always kind of interfered with Christmas and New Year. So just enjoying the Christmas and New Year properly and um, not worrying about what I was eating and drinking and went to a couple of concerts. But then then we went into lockdown and I think it I think it just properly made me retire, you know, um, it it made me realize like you're not an athlete anymore because you went, I wasn't an athlete at home. who was scrapping around for equipment and trying to keep myself going. Like it was brutal for a lot of athletes to try and make sure they could keep themselves in shape during that, particularly the first lockdown. So maybe that helped a little bit. Maybe Danny helped a lot as well. Just kind of knowing, you know, we're now into the next stage of our career. It obviously helped knowing that you gave it everything, that commitment and determination that I talked about. The one thing I always wanted to know was when I hung my rackets up that it was like no stone left unturned. I'd, I'd done everything I could. And, I, and then there's obviously a few regrets there without wanting to sound like an idiot because I achieved so much. You've always got like, oh, I wish I'd have won that one or I wish I'd have done a bit better there. Um, so you will look back and think that. But but I think I think I've moved on pretty well and I've really I've really taken to the coaching as well and like really seeing improvements in the people that I'm working with and that's really exciting to think that I could possibly pass on some of the stuff that I that I did and work for me and help them become better players so um, and then obviously now being pregnant as well I mean you talk about body changes I was sort of struggling with that a little bit I mean, seeing your belly grow is a whole different level. And I don't know whether I've listened to a lot of podcasts and they talk, the one podcast I've been listening to is called, um, they call it kind of like athlete brain. And it's like, you go from pushing yourself every day and if you get tired, you just push through, right? And you're like, I'm just a bit tired, get through it. I'll I'll get into it in a minute. And when you're pregnant, you're just like... I, I, my gut's going just come on just you'll get into it and my, and my other my other gut's going oh, I've got two guts my the other side of me is going you've got a baby in your belly what are you doing and it's like do, sh- should you versus could you and that kind of bodily change and my cheeks are getting bigger and my fingers feel a bit fatter and swollen and I'm just like I, just, I look in the mirror and think what the heck is happening to me <laughs> um obviously millions of women have gone through that and so I, I guess um that was a whole different level on top of like athlete body changing and seeing that muscle sort of just disappear a little bit and adding a little bit more fat on and, and everything. So I, I mean, I, I've probably gone through that kind of body change more because of the pregnancy as well. And, and dealing with that, which is another, I'm sure you could probably speak to athletes who've had babies for about for weeks on how that feels. (laughs) So first of all, then Laura, whilst we're on the podcast, huge congratulations with the pregnancy news that is super exciting and I know that you and Danny are going to be unbelievable this kid is very lucky so it's all good (laughs) there Um, but the book got to talk about it all in have you always wanted to write a book where do you even start with writing a book and have you found it how have you found it was it like cathartic or at times quite difficult to write about certain situations just just tell me everything so I think I think I've, I've wanted to write a book because of what I said earlier in terms of like just reading so many books and being so inspired by them and thinking 
whether it whether it gets out to a wider audience than squash or whether it just helps a few squash people juniors um just understand maybe how how people perceived how mentally strong they they thought I was mentally strong I had this nickname and wanted to just talk about how how I you know didn't always have it together as much as it seemed and that there was a lot of it was a front and you you know athletes put on this front don't you living within a mask a lot of the time you you know, you've got little injuries, worries, um, illnesses, you know, not playing well, confidence, you just put it, you just like chin up, shoulders back, nah, it's all good sort of thing. Um, and I'm never going to say that while I'm playing, but I kind of wanted to say that, um, that for everybody who you think, if you thought that I had everything together, then this now shows that perhaps I didn't. And so maybe, maybe that might help people. Um, the, the, there was no female squash player that had written a book. So I'm not going to lie that that kind of was there. Like there's um, four male squash players, I think, that have written a book. So um, kind of wanted to join that club a little bit, which was which was good. Um, and then and then, yeah, just being just kind of wanting to to give up to just give back overall, I think. And it was it was definitely interesting as as the as the book runs through there's diary entries. So. I, it was interesting reading through all of my diaries from when I was playing. And I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but at the time when you're going through something, it's like the only time you've ever been through this injury and you don't know how you're ever going to kind of come back from it again or how you're going to perform well. Um, and then you get ill and then you're like, oh my God, I've got to go to a tournament and I've not had the ideal lead up. And then you have a great result and you get a bit cocky and then you get put back in your place with a bad result. And then, and, it, and, I, and I'm reading these diaries and those four examples that I've just given were just like a merry-go-round for years. And every single time I'm writing this diary, I'm just thinking in my head, looking back at it now, but you've just been through that. Like, how come you didn't realize that? And it never, it never felt like I'd been through any of these situations before. When I read them back, I could not believe how much of a merry-go-round I was on, just through same experience after same experience, get too cocky, then you have a loss, then you get down, and then you train harder, and then you're a bit upset and you're down in the dumps, then you play well again, then you get an injury, then you come back. And, and it was just, it's just the same thing over and over again. And I think that that was really, really interesting for me and interesting to sort of even pass on to the people that I'm coaching that you feel like every experience is new and you, you guys know you have to pull out of a race because you're ill or you've got an injury and it's like the biggest thing you've ever done. And then you look back and you're like, oh yeah, I, I pulled out of that event five years ago. I don't even remember it now, but it's the biggest thing in the world to you at the time. So that was hugely kind of interesting to read back and um and put the ones that were good enough to go in the book in in there it is like when you look back once stepping away from the sport you look back and you're like why did the smallest things feel like the biggest thing like it was the end of the world and i think we're all guilty of it um of doing it at times but if you could go back um now and tell 12 year old or young laura i guess words of wisdom or a bit of advice um what would you tell her knowing all that you've gone through now um and all the things the competitions that you've been through would there be anything you'd tell her I guess to any little bits that you'd tell your younger self 
I think it's easy, isn't it, to kind of go, you know, you sort of look back and go, don't worry, it's all going to turn out okay. (laughs) But you don't, I mean, it's impossible to ever know that. So I think, I think if I was, if I was sort of talking to myself, like if I say that a lot of this stuff that I talked about and the successes that I had kicked in from perhaps 25, 26 onwards, like what was I actually doing for, you know, seven years on tour, six or seven years, that's a long time. And I was doing the best I could at the time. I I genuinely believe I was doing the best that I could, but I think it would just be to say, to just keep, keep in the faith and try not to get too high with the highs and too low with the lows and to try and keep a bit of an even, an even keel and keep having, having honesty with yourself and with the people around you and, have people around you who you trust and who you believe in and who are honest with you, but also caring as well. And I think I found that balance massively towards the end of my career where the people around me were honest without being overly harsh um, and, and could tell me how it was, but also knew when to put an arm around me as well. And so it was, it's finding that those for, for, for if I was offering advice maybe more to other people than myself it would be kind of try and have that honesty within yourself but try and find the people around you who have got that really good balance of being honest with you but also like caring as well because not everyone's the same but for me personally having that caring element I was so tough on myself that I didn't need anyone else being tougher tough on me as well I think um just from listening to you today, just for a short time, I feel like there's loads I can ask you, but I'm sure the book does a fantastic job in obviously going into depth and everything. But just just when we speak to, from doing this podcast and speaking to loads of different athletes, Jazz and I have noticed the parallels in sport are just, they're right there. And, and you know, sports don't like to cross over. They don't like to why would you go over and speak to a squash player or why would you, but actually it's so important to, and you've said yourself, a book from another sport has done more for you and got you to win a world championship. And it's unbelievable. And so when you say, you know, you obviously you hope it crosses over and, and goes outside of the world of squash. I, I think it's so important to, and it would be amazing to, because like I said before, it doesn't matter what sport, what level, what age, everyone goes through these emotions. And so you, you're better learning from whoever you can. And actually sometimes for someone from another sport can do more for you than actually what your own sport has to offer. So just, I think, well, thanks from Jazz and I for coming on, but also for being brave enough to, to write a book, to be doing what you're doing because you're helping so many people that you won't even realize ourselves included. And so we just really appreciate you, you know, giving us your time and coming on to speak about your experiences and yeah, just thank, thanks for coming on Laura. Thanks. It's been fun. It's not, it is hard. It's hard, but nice to talk about all of this and you're absolutely right. I think sometimes seeing you, you can't actually see the wood for your trees in your own sport sometimes and seeing something from the outside is talking to a different athlete where there's no threat as well can be the biggest biggest thing that you can do to help you sport and your, and your mental health as well and as a sports fan last question like I would love to see squash in the Olympics do you feel the same or is it like all towards the world titles like I guess swimming it's like the olympics is the biggest the pinnacle i would love to see squash knit i don't really know why it's so would i how (laughs) how do you feel though from being involved in the sport would you love to see it in the olympics 
Yeah, of course. And it, I think as an athlete, you just literally have to go, that is something that is completely out of my control and nothing I can do at all. And strangely, we were probably closest to getting in for 2012 and missed out really kind of narrowly and then haven't really been anywhere near since. And we've tried everything. You know, I th- it feels like squash have tried everything from getting like literally Roger Federer on board with the sport to put, you know, then working with like urban squash programs where you're like helping, you know, you're like, un, like kind of the lesser, lesser kind of like wealthy countries and getting more people, getting people who can't afford squashing, it can't afford to play squash into, into the game. And it's such a shame. And of course, I think that the, that the Olympics would become our pinnacle and it's a sh- the Commonwealth Games is huge for us. Whereas for you guys, it's it's huge, but it's also like the friendly version of the Olympics. Like they call it the friendly games, don't they? Um, and it's still huge and you still want to earn, like, you know, it means so much to, but particularly in athletics, you're, you're always going to skip the Commonwealth Games. And for us, that's like, it's our pinnacle because um, with a world title, British Open, stuff like that. So yeah, of course, would absolutely love to be an Olympic sport, but it, it's really not something that I can control it because it's not even something squash can control as an organization. So I hope one day some young junior gets to play for an Olympic gold medal, but until then um, the tour, I think if you can get the tour rocking and earning enough money and the publicity a little bit better, then, then hopefully they then come to you with wanting to get involved. Definitely. Well, fingers crossed for that. But yeah, like I said, Laura, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Good luck with everything. There's so much to look forward to and to be excited about, especially a little one on the way. But yeah, good luck with everything that's going on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to everyone that's listened and tuned in on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Jazz, Amazon. Amazon now, yeah. Yeah, Amazon Amazon Music now, so there you go. We really appreciate the support and you listening and we look forward to seeing you next week for a new episode of the podcast.